brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin podcast, where we talk to all kinds of writers about writing. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and today I'm going to be talking to the novelist and essayist Pankaj Mishra about his new book, Run and Hide. Now, if you don't know him already, Pankaj is a phenomenal writer of fiction and non-fiction. His first book, Butter Chicken in Ludhiana, Travels in Small Town India, was a travelogue that described the social and cultural changes in India in the context of globalisation. His novel, The Romantics, an exploration of people longing for fulfilment in cultures other than their own, has been published in 11 European languages and won the Los Angeles Times Art Seidenbaum Award for First Fiction. Bankaj, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Neil. Interestingly, on my desk here, next to your book, I've got Shashi Tharoor's book, The Struggle for India's Soul. And I wonder, while reading Run and Hide, could the two books, one non-fiction, one fiction, converge at points with your book being in terms of what Shashi Tharoor is writing about, the microcosm to his macrocosm? I suppose, yes. I mean, I suppose, you know, a lot of nonfiction that I have written too about India in the past two decades or so has been concerned with the enormous transformations in in that country, by which I mean not only political earthquakes of the kind we've seen with Modi's election in 2014, uh, for those who don't know, the election of a politician who was once accused of presiding over a, a, a mass murder. Now, that was a deeply traumatic event for many secular Indians, just as the election of Donald Trump and Boris Johnson have been traumatic events for people in the US and the UK. So I think even before Modi's election in 2014, there were plenty of signs that Indian society... Uh, and certainly a class of people in that society, class of people who had benefited a great deal from the opening up of the Indian economy, that class had started to lose its way morally. Uh, so this whole question of uh, losing your soul, struggling for your soul, all those questions became very important, very urgent, in fact, because we felt, uh, you know, Shashi Tharoor, I'd probably agree with me, that in the pursuit of power and wealth, many of us in, in India lost some very basic and necessary things like compassion, ideas of coexistence, tolerance for other people from different religions, different ethnicities, and that we became a much more strident much more aggressive, much less compassionate people. So I think, yes, to answer your question. In what ways does fiction allow you, Pankaj, to tell this story of India in a different way to non-fiction? That's a very good question because, you know, I think I actually decided to go back to writing fiction after not having done it for 20 years because I felt that the non-fiction I was doing wasn't able to capture a lot of the complexity of this transformation. You know, say it could claim that, look, we've got a lot of prosperity, a lot of rich people in the country, but there are a lot of poor people too. And there's a lot of inequality. People are suffering from very, very severe forms of inequality. And that psychologically 
very crippling. You could make all those claims in your nonfiction. You could, you know, come up with all kinds of data to support what you were saying in your nonfiction. Uh, but there were other forms of human experience that could not be covered by nonfiction. You know, to give you an example, and this is something I try to write about in my novel. What happens when you have been deprived of power for too long, and then you gain it? What happens if you've been poor for too long, and then you become rich? Uh, what are the fundamental transformations in your inner life? Uh, how does it affect your personal relationships to your parents, to your wife, to your girlfriend, to your brothers, to your friends? Now that is something nonfiction can't really deal with. Only in this very spacious form of the novel, also a very democratic space of the novel, where you can write about things, write about people, write about events without judging them. You're giving everyone a chance, you know, to be who they are, without actually pronouncing judgment on them. So I think for all those reasons, the novel became a very attractive form for me. How confident were you after 22 years of, since your last fiction, The Romantics, that you were still good at it? Well, I had no uh, confidence whatsoever. Uh, it took me a while to, you know, sort of feel those fiction writing muscles. You know, I obviously had lost them. I had to kind of rebuild them. And very slowly, it was a very painful process in the beginning because, I, you know, once you get so accustomed to working with facts, with brute facts and then shaping your narratives around them. Uh, so you already know what you're going to say in your nonfiction. Whereas with fiction, it's the other way around. You actually have no idea what you're going to do, what you're going to say. You start with an image, you start with a scene, and then you have to be led by the inner logic and momentum of your narrative. You have to be led by your characters. You can't impose any of your own ideas. So it was all very difficult because I'm so accustomed to exercising control over my narratives, over what I'm doing. I'm very much sure of where I'm going, what the next page is going to be about and how the whole thing is going to end at some point while I'm writing a nonfiction book. I know I can see the end. Here I couldn't see anything at all. I was working literally in the dark. So I think it was a bit of a struggle, you know, going back to writing fiction. And then I think, you know, the other thing I had to contend with, which was that, you know, 20 years after writing my first novel, I had accumulated so much experience, so much intransigent experience, intransigent to being captured economically in the form of the novel. So the challenge before me was not a challenge I faced with the first novel. You know, with the first novel, you're very still very young, you are very energetic, there is an experience, an idea, a story that you want to get out on the page, and obviously you've been working on it in different forms, in different drafts here and there, and your experience is very limited, you know, when you're in your 20s, which is, you know, how old I was when I wrote my first novel. Whereas now, it's a much larger experience, and it's an experience not just of India, but of many different realities outside of India. So, you know, the option before you is to either ignore that experience altogether and to go back to, you know, doing what you used to do 20 years ago. And so therefore shrink your experience and just write about that shrunken experience. Or you try and sort of bring all your experience into play in the novel you're writing. And which is what I decided to do, which is to write about three decades of change, to write about 
India and the world changing and, you know, describe the lives of these characters through three decades of change. So, you know, that again present, presented a whole host of uh, formal problems that I had to solve. One thing I was thinking about, especially about the descriptions of poverty, the minute details involved in travelling into a person's space, a domestic space, was so often NRIs, non-resident Indians or people who visit India, look around and they're shocked by the poverty. And then they'll speak to someone who lives there who has ceased to see it anymore because it's just there every day. Well, a lot of it is obviously, you know, based on my own experience of these places. You know, our family was never as poor as the family described in the novel. I grew up in railway towns, very close to railway stations. So I knew very well this this kind of life around the railway tracks. And, you know, the people who had no access to public toilets and had to go for open air defecation near the tracks. And one of my sort of memories of growing up in these places is of a schoolmate of mine returning one morning from open air defecation with a bottle in his hand. And, you know, that boy then went on to be a very good scholar, very good at at studies, and he became a chartered accountant in his early 20s or mid-20s maybe. I still remember the expression on his face. He realized that he had been exposed as someone who did this very degrading thing every morning and that someone from his school had seen him do that. And I think the feelings of shame that come with that kind of poverty and that kind of destitution, a lot of what has happened in India politically over the last 10, 15 years has happened because these feelings of shame and humiliation have become extremely volatile and they've been channeled by very canny politicians into a loathing and resentment of people seen as privileged or people seen as members of elites. So instead of some kind of a political struggle for rights, for justice, politicians have deployed these always latent feelings of shame and humiliation and unleashed them against minorities, unleashed them against not just, you know, so-called cosmopolitan, metropolitan liberals, but also minorities who belong to some of the poorest and most depressed communities in India. So that was something I really wanted to write about in this novel, you know, just how you're marked by that early experience of not just material deprivation, but also these deep psychological injuries left by a horribly socially unequal society. How would you debate with someone who would accuse Run and Hyde of being unpatriotic? Well, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of my nonfiction has also been criticized in those terms, are being described as anti-Indian or anti-Hindu and so on and so forth. And my reaction has been, I suppose I can describe it in one word, indifference. It's utterly foolish to assume that writers should uphold these narrow nationalistic dogmas whenever they put pen on paper. I mean, it's just really not a charge that I can take seriously, or for that matter, anyone should take seriously. But what about or whether it is a responsibility of a writer to 
at least attempt to build a bridge with people who are diametrically opposed to you? Or is it not your job to do that? I feel like art in itself cannot become a bridge. It cannot become a bridge between people who are very strongly opposed to each other politically. That was never the purpose of art. I think it was meant, or it is meant, to deepen our consciousness, to deepen our awareness, to deepen our self-awareness. And if, as a byproduct, we come to have a more refined understanding of the people that we are opposed to politically, well, then that's great. But that cannot be the primary purpose of, of art. So when people say, and it's become almost a platitude of sorts, that literature promotes empathy, my response is, well, it can. It doesn't have to. And it often doesn't. How good is art then, certainly art coming from a liberal perspective, at asking questions of itself, as opposed to asking questions of those who it does not agree with? Well, I mean, I think, you know, if you're going to look at art in terms of utility, then I think, you know, one should just simply bluntly admit that art is perfectly useless. It doesn't do anything. I think it's best to think of art as providing a kind of experience that is not available elsewhere, uh, an experience of other realities, of certain place, of a time, of people, of history, and I think that's what it does. And if it can do that successfully, well, you've got a pretty successful work of art. That itself is very difficult to do. You know, I think people spend most of their lives trying to pull off that intimate communication between author and reader or the creator and the audience. And I think that should really remain the primary task of the writer. Now, Pankaj, we did ask you to bring some objects with you, as that was one of the central pillars of the Penguin podcast. And of course, you're a great traveller, and there's something you see every day that reminds you of that. Tell us about your first object. It's a head of the, the Buddha, which is in, done in the Gandhara style from what is now Afghanistan and, and, and Pakistan. But I bought it in Indonesia, in Java, a long time ago. It's a very small head and it's always been with me and I see it more or less every day. And it captures this incredibly serene face and especially in the Gandhara representation of the Buddha that is marked by this extraordinary uh, serenity. And that always starts a day on a very calm note. So yes, that's one of my uh, actually very few cherished objects. In terms of you and faith then, what role does faith, if any, play in your life? I think, you know, I, I mean, I don't think of, and I think a lot of people will agree with me, I don't really think of Buddhism as a faith uh, like Christianity or Islam. I think of it as a way of life, a worldview, I mean, obviously, there are people in countries like Thailand or Sri Lanka and, and Burma where people have turned it into a kind of, you know, organized uh, faith. The Buddha's original message, really, he was talking about life as we live it, all of us every day, and have lived for centuries and centuries, a life full of desires, of temptations, of restlessness, of striving, 
failure, disappointment, unhappiness, also joy at the same time. And he gave us some excellent advice about how to deal with all these many contrasting emotions and how to secure a life of fulfillment for for oneself. So he was a great, in that sense, a great psychologist, a great sort of diagnostician of the human soul and the human mind. You've told us something from your desk. What about something that reminds you of home? Well, there's, you know, pictures of the Himalayas and specifically of Tibet. I haven't spent a lot of time there, but I think it's the one place that I've been to where I felt, and maybe it had something to do with the high altitude in Tibet, but I felt heady all the time. I felt sort of exalted, a feeling of exaltation that I've not known before or indeed anywhere else after those trips. The landscape, the, the sort of scale of the landscape, the kind of bleakness of it, at the same time, the small clusters of villages here and there, the enormous distances, the clear air, all of that really combined to give you a very sort of intoxicating sense. And that is something that rather pathetically I sort of remind myself of with this little uh, screensaver I have of a Tibetan landscape. What about uh, onto another object? Old magazine covers from India. How far back are we going with these magazine covers, Pankaj? It's interesting. I mean, you know, a lot of these magazines I used to read pretty regularly in the in the 1980s, some in the 1970s too. I started reading when I was very young and living in small towns when nothing happened. Uh, there was no television, no cinema. There was only radio. Uh, the newspapers arrived a day late. So magazines and newspapers were really the things you craved and I would pounce on them whenever I saw them, whether old or new, it didn't matter. And, you know, I because I read them so many times, I still remember the covers and I still remember the typeface on, on particular pages because I read them so many times and memorized them. So fortunately, with the advent of the internet and with eBay in particular, there are ways in which you can ransack your memories by simply putting in a few words in the search space and come up with these covers that once enchanted you. And, you know, that's my sort of version of the Proustian moment where you see something and it triggers you and plunges you into these very deep memories of, you know, particular time or particular quality of light, uh, of air, of smells, all of those things that are otherwise irretrievable. The elements of nostalgia that you have to resist, because a lot of the politicians who you probably disagree with, they mine nostalgia, don't they, in order to project to the electorate a sense of how how better things were. Yes, but I think there's a difference. And the nostalgia they mine is a fantasy of a collective existence where there were no foreigners, where life was simpler, where a lot of things that, you know, used to give you satisfaction were present and they hadn't been essentially spoiled. 
Whereas in Australia that I'm talking about here is deeply private, is deeply intimate. In a way, it's very much part of my childhood, a particular way of relating to the world, of engaging with the world. It's not something that can be politicized. So we are talking about two different kinds of nostalgia. One is a private experience. The nostalgia that politicians deploy in many ways, what they're referring to is a certain kind of social existence that was made possible largely because people like you and I were not there at the time. Uh, the immigrants or people who came to this country from elsewhere, they were not there. And that's why things were better back then. I don't think any of my nostalgia is exclusionary in that way. It doesn't depend for its force on thinking that, oh, I can go back to it if only these people could be sent back or if it could reduce immigration or something or other. One of the things I fear as I get older is cynicism. Is that something you do you think about? Do you think you're immune from it? I think defended from it. Uh, defended perhaps is not the right word. Maybe I'm kind of driven back from it by my soon-to-be 14-year-old daughter, who obviously is growing up in a world that my generation has done everything to screw up. So her inheritance from me and from my generation is a very bleak one. So she has every right to be cynical about us and about me, about people my age. But I think she's quite hopeful of creating a reality, she and her friends, she and her generation, uh, of creating a reality which is better, creating a world that is more just, more humane. And I think that saves me from excessive cynicism and despair because I think every generation does remake the world for itself. And it is definitely their turn because I think perhaps you and I have been exposed as complete failures. And I think it's time to step aside and, and you know perhaps give their hopes and energy the space that they need. Well, that's why there's so much riding on us being good parents, which we'll only really find out about once they become adults themselves, because then they'll tell us how we screwed them up. <laughs> exactly. Um, talking of childhoods, let's go back to yours and another object. Wood panelled train compartments. Yes, well, because my father worked for the railways and we travelled a lot because we got a free railway pass. And in the, in the 70s, a lot of these trains were being phased out. These compartments were being phased out. But I still remember these wood panelled compartments that were self-sufficient. The doors opened out to the platforms. There were no corridors. And they were really, truly wonderful. A lot of mirrors around, a lot of reflections. Uh, so when I read books about travel in Europe in the 1920s and 30s, uh, Nabokov writes a lot about train journeys and he, he, he writes about those kinds of compartments. I can relate to that very easily. The romance, the glamour of those particular train journeys and overnight journeys is something I will always remember. And I often seek out descriptions of those journeys in books because that's something that's been really lost, I think. I mean, we've got faster trains. Um, 
you got sleeker trains, but nothing quite like being pulled by a steam engine across hundreds and thousands of miles, traveling very slowly, but in great comfort, with very good food, stopping at small stations, you know, discovering the sort of sheer dazzling variety of humanity through all those stops, platforms, different kinds of railway station buildings. That was really absolutely magical in my childhood. Do you um, get into a flow state of any kind when you're in a train? Are you the guy that is just looking out of the window? Don't interrupt him. Don't have a conversation with him. He just wants to soak it all in. I go back and forth. I mean, I think, you know, on Indian train journeys, uh, because they're so long, you certainly need some kind of diversion. You need some kind of company. And people are very gregarious. They want to ask you all kinds of questions, you know, about where you're from, what do you do, and are you married? Uh, and also, disconcertingly, <laughs> what is your salary? Um, so I think, uh, you know, it's hard to escape and you shouldn't escape conversation because it's, you know, it's great fun in those settings. But also, I just like actually watching the passing scenery and, you know, different towns and different cities and different villages. That was my kind of formative experience as a child, kind of traveling on trains and going to these different cities and approaching them through these kind of outer areas. And I still remember them. I mean, although those places have been now transformed, but images and scenes are still very vivid in my memory. What's on your reading list? Well, there's always a few things, but actually in recent months, I've managed to impose some discipline on my uh, reading list because I started to learn Spanish. And very ambitiously, I've decided that I can improve my Spanish by trying to read in it. And I think the things that I can read with some difficulty, but nevertheless with certainly more facility than I can read fiction, is poetry. So I've, you know, acquired various volumes, bilingual editions of Lorca and Neruda and Octavio Paz, and kind of, you know, making my way through them very slowly. And Lorca was also known as a playwright. In fact, probably better known as a playwright than as a poet, but he wrote some wonderful poems about, many poems, in fact, about his childhood upbringing in Andalusia and this wonderful landscape that he grew up in. And that's been providing me with a great deal of comfort and joy in uh, the last few, last few weeks. And also simultaneously reading a biography of his, a very good biography of his, which, you know, is also opening up another kind of window on his life and his and his preoccupations. Bankaj, Run and Hide is superb. It really is. And you certainly found your muscle, as it were, or indeed the muscle memory that you had for it. Does that mean then that the world will not be waiting 20 years for the next work of fiction from Pankaj Mistra? I hope the world is not waiting for anything from me at this point, because I'm very much looking forward to not doing much work at all <laughs> in the next uh, <laughs> few years. And I said, I mean, I, I think I'm on my way. Uh, I hope I'm making my way gracefully towards the door marked retirement, because I feel like... That's okay, not going to happen, Pankaj. You know, quite a few That's books. not going to happen. 
Maybe when, not. when do writers retire, really? I mean, when do they retire? Come on. <laughs> or maybe maybe they, they, they become less productive and spend more time reading. I mean, that's something I've discovered uh, in recent months that I really do enjoy reading a lot more than I enjoy writing. So I'd like to do a lot more reading and do less writing. But I'm really very excited, I have to say, by the idea of writing more fiction. The reality of it might be quite forbidding, but because I enjoyed writing this book so much, I enjoyed this book, writing this book, more than I have enjoyed writing all my other books combined. Well, perhaps your next piece of fiction will be in Spanish. That's an ambition for you. It is something that has occurred to me, and then I have berated (laughs) myself for uh, even entertaining such an absurd (laughs) ambition. Well, start with poetry. I mean, that's you know, start with poetry and then and then and then work up from there. Pankaj Mishra, it's been such a pleasure to have a conversation with you this evening. Likewise, thank you so much, Neil. Thank you wherever you are for listening to. I'll be back in two weeks when I'm going to be talking to the physicist and futurist Dr. Michio Kaku about his search for the God equation, a theory that could explain everything we know about physics chemistry and the natural world i mean (laughs) there's a task he's an amazing guy and i cannot wait to chat to him do let me know if you've got something you'd like to ask him you can find us in all the usual places please subscribe also to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode and you can leave us a review too and help get the word out and finally as ever if you want to find out more about this podcast or pankaj and his work all you need to do is go to penguin.co.uk slash podcasts I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and I shall see you next time.